Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. This is your host, Gabe BC. I'm currently sitting in the middle of a thunderstorm in New York. Maybe you can hear it in the background, providing some ambiance to this episode. You'll hear it throughout the episode. Um, And I hope that you uh, are safe and healthy wherever you are with all of the intense things going on in the world right now. Uh, I hope you also had a chance to listen to last week's episode with Emilio Chapella. Emilio is an amazing artist, and we talk about how there's actually a little bit of the Big Bang in every piece of white static that you find on an old tube television. Really amazing uh, theories and artwork from Emilio. So go back and give that one a listen if you haven't heard it already. This week, we have an incredible artist. Um, You may have heard of her work before, Morshin Aliari. Morshin is an artist who works across many different mediums, including 3D prints, sculptures. She's an artist, activist, writer, and educator. She was born in Iran and moved to the United States in 2007. And her work deals with the political, social, and cultural contradictions we face every day. So we talk about digital colonialism uh, and a series of work that she created in which she recreated monstrous female queer figures of Middle Eastern origin out of 3D prints, 3D scans, and uh, actually some text. She does a really amazing reading at the end of this episode. So stick around for that. And without further ado, let's welcome Morshin Aliari to the podcast. Morshin, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe we can start at the beginning here. Um, when did you first start creating art? Were you always a, an artsy kid? Was there a particular moment uh, or a piece that you remember creating first? Um, yeah, so I would say that my interest to the art world uh, started probably from the time I was um, in middle school, around the age of 12 in Iran. Um, and I was um, attending this school that kind of was doing this uh, creative thing where like every every week, uh, once a week, instead of like taking regular classes that we all had to take, uh, we were able to choose a um, couple of creative classes. Um, and so, you know, these were like from, you know, advanced drawing or painting to creative writing class uh, to uh, other activities. And I, uh, became really interested in taking this creative writing class Mm. and the teacher who was teaching that class, um, just immediately, you know, had a really uh, big influence on me. And I fell in love with writing, um, writing stories and learning how to kind of use my own, uh, stories and experiences to, um, talk about things that was going through my head at a time, you know, as a teenager. Um, and then this continued and the, the, the person who was teaching that class, uh, she started to, to have these private creative writing classes at her house. So between the age of 12 to 18, I basically attended these creative writing classes. And that also um, resulted in the publication of this novel that I worked on uh, that got published when I was uh, 16 in Iran that Hmm. I got a bunch of awards and prizes for that was about the story of my grandmother who lived with us at our house that I grew up with. I was very close with her. And so I would say from a very early age, I learned the power of storytelling and using the stories she would tell me about her life and kind of figuring out how I can bring it into this this book that I was writing about her life. And um, that kind of creativity and uh, perspective toward um, 
uh, you know, expressing what I was thinking and also, again, expanding just out of one personal thing to talk about bigger issues. In the case of the book, I talk about, you know, her life, but also the life of uh, women and the Kurdistan and the West of Iran, where my family um, is from. And kind of talk about the struggle of women uh, and also patriarchal traditions, etc. And did you write more books after that initial piece came out or that initial uh, book came out? I wrote short stories after that. And then, um, you know, I started to become more interested in uh, a little bit of uh, an interdisciplinary space between journalism and uh, visual art in you know, mostly like photography. But my major in Iran that I studied, my undergrad was in social science uh, and media studies. So it was very much theory based. And then um, I was looking for, you know, some something that could bring together these two worlds of theory and practice in, in some ways. And so I, through a set of events, I got very lucky and I got a scholarship in the U.S. at University of Denver hmm. to come and study at grad school. Um, and in that was in new media art, digi digital media studies. So that really was kind of, I would say, the beginning of um, a more focused, serious way of, um, you know, thinking about visual art and new media and digital tools as um, a way that I could um, kind of, again, bring together these worlds of theory and poetic and writing. Was it difficult to make that jump from writing to creating physical objects? At the beginning, I would say yes. Um, I was constantly like searching for that space when I was at grad school um you know I was very new to this major which involved uh, learning a lot of software a yeah. lot of um different you know digital tools and technologies um that's something I know very little about I was always curious about it I mean that's why I also chose this this major of digital media because um in Iran during my undergrad we had one class that was called cyber studies and I fell in love with this class and, you know, but that was as much as was offered. There was no digital media major uh, kind of media studies was mostly like focused on um, radio and television, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, that was like the limits and I wanted to go beyond that. So the, the this this major in grad school, I guess, was my first um, really introduction to technology. So at, at, at the beginning was really hard to figure out how to bring together these two worlds that felt very separated. And what were you creating in, in the beginning? Like what kind of projects did you first start making in grad school? Um, I was doing, you know, as soon as I learned like video editing, I started to just make videos. But at a time, I didn't have much narrative in my videos. I didn't have writing. Um, again, it really hadn't clicked in my head that I could bring these two worlds yeah. together. Um, and uh, for after my MA, I did my MFA in new media art. Um, and that was in Texas at University of North Texas. And um, there I learned animation and 3D software. And so that, that I would say opened a whole new world uh, for me that I figured uh, you know, that, okay, I can build everything from scratch, which 
in video art or like in cinema, it's not exactly like that. You know, the world already exists and you go right. and document it and film it, you know, but with, with, with animation, you have, you can build a whole thing from scratch. And I think that that's kind of unlimited aspect of that very technology made me think that, okay, well, what if I also can like write stuff and then like bring it there either as just a text on screen and like, or like voiceover. So that felt natural. And that's what I started to really um, do more and more. So 3d animated pieces as well as text and voiceover. Yes. And uh, maybe we can pick one of these early pieces or, or a piece that you worked on called material speculation, ISIS. Um, we talked about sort of your interest in documenting reality and, um, kind of recreating in 3d, but this piece presents 3d printed reproductions of sculptures destroyed by ISIS. Was this a piece that you created in school or afterwards? Um, that was a piece I created after school. And so that was, um, a little bit of, um, to give you some years before that, I had become really interested in 3D printing and digital fabrication. So prior to working on material speculation, ISIS project, um, I worked on uh, this manifesto called the 3D Additivist Manifesto Mm -hmm. and also a book called the 3D Additivist Cookbook um, with a collaborator. And, um, you know, I before that, I also worked on another project where um, I thought about using 3D printed technology as a tool that can document different aspects of our lives with dark matter. Um, I was fascinated by this idea of, wow, now there's a machine that I can bring something from digital to a physical space. I mean, now we say 3D printing and it just sounds normal <laughs> i just remember coming yeah. across this video um i think it was at, on vice or something but this is 2013 and seeing an an object getting 3d printed and it just looked like it belonged to another world obviously the technology of 3d printing for uh those of you listening who might not know it's been around for over 30 years but only recently it has become, you know, accessible and expensive and also advanced in a way that um, suddenly like maker spaces and, um, you know, a little bit more professionally in different, um, I guess, studios and labs uh, and also, you know, a cheaper version of it is maker bots where artists could just like buy one and put it in their studio. So this accessibility and kind of I guess, uh, progress within that technology made it possible to suddenly, you know, for this boom to happen. Um, and seeing that video, I, I figured that there's so much I can do with this technology in a way that is, hasn't been really realized yet. And, um, the, the first thing was, what if I could 3d print things or objects that are forbidden in Mm. a country like Iran, you know? Um, and this is both practical and symbolic, but I thought about also like gathering this archive documentation of these objects. And um, anyway, to, to make this short, I, I kind of had these ideas of both like activism, resistance, political ways of thinking through this technology, but also po- poetic aspect of this tool in my head. And then um, with Material Speculation ISIS, this is uh, a project that I started working on in 2015. And it came right after the video of um, the destruction of Mosul Museum in Iraq mm-hmm. came out. Again, some of you might remember, it was a video that uh, went viral. It shows um, ISIS members, Daesh um, members, and they are uh, d- destroying these artifacts at Mosul. And then, 
uh, it's very detailed documentation. So it was a huge shock when this video came out in a way that it was represented, especially for people from and of, of Middle East and, um, you know, also a lot of other people who are interested in cultural heritage. And this loss um, obviously was was huge. So I was like, okay, what if I try to find a way to reconstruct these artifacts that were destroyed and then um, to 3D print them? And that was a project that took a year and a half. It was way more complicated than I, than I thought. Can you tell us about the artifacts that you selected? How many statues were selected for the reconstruction? Altogether, there's 15 of them that I worked on. Um, obviously, also the process of um, selection was, as I mentioned briefly, there was like a lot of complexities. And uh, one reason was that although in the video we see the artifacts that get destroyed, there is there was at a time a lot of unknown about um, you know what else was destroyed and also um, they were some of the artifacts that were destroyed at Mosul Museum that were copies and the original one was um, at, the, at uh, the museum in, in Baghdad but at a time there was a lot of confusion around this and also Daesh stayed in Mosul for um, two years even a little bit more maybe afterwards um so you know people couldn't just go in and figure out exactly the details of what had happened and all we had was that video so i did a lot of research i uh, reached out to different scholars and historians five six months into my research i uh, got a hold of uh, former members of um Musul museum and they helped um, a lot with being able to select the artifacts that uh, we thought was important to work on the reconstruction of. Um, and so that's what I did. And uh, it, when you look at these sculptures, uh, they are 3D printed in transparent resin material. So inside each of these um, sculptures, uh, I also have embedded these memory cards and flash drives that contain PDF files, images, um, my my email correspondent with scholars and historians, as I mentioned, um, and also the process of making these these sculptures, as well as STL OBJ files, which are standard 3D printable files, um, which means that you know all this data are saved inside this this the body of these sculptures like time capsules and for future generations is your goal with this piece to have people recreate these sculptures in the future or is it more an act of resistance i'm, I'm kind of curious how you frame this work uh, within a larger context um it's i would say it's both an act of resistance and but most importantly thinking about archiving something mm -hmm. that is that is lost and that is destroyed um one other thing with you know the complication with this project was that you know Iraq has been um, on the war and conflict for over thirty something years. So um, it's you know like a place like a museum hasn't really um, been documented or mm. images from the artifacts was not something that was just like available because there hasn't been tourists. The museum itself has been underfunded and understaffed. So um, when I started doing this research, there was so little information out there. I had to do so much digging and researching and, again, reaching out to different resources to, to, to bring together an average of 
probably around 10 or like max 12, 15 um, images for each artifact. So this also showed me the need for documenting these artifacts that um, are kind of not really um, well preserved in that sense. Yeah, and all the collection of media surrounding them as well is very interesting that that's included inside the sculpture itself. Yes. Uh, I've seen several projects where people kind of recreate um, monuments that have been destroyed in VR or in virtual environments. Um, have you seen projects like that as well? I have. I mean, you know, there was a kind of, again, like another buzz of this when these disruptions were happening. Um, there was a project called... Um, uh, called um, the the Palmera project, where it was um, a, a collaboration between UN and uh, Digital Archaeology Institution in in the UK and a couple of other institutions. Um, and the idea was that they would reconstruct Palmera, which is a um, eighteen hundred year um, historical site that was destroyed in Syria. And they did this project, and then they launched it in London, but there is so much trouble with so many of these like projects that are done this way. Yeah, I was going to um, ask. I was which, I was curious about you your choice to make them physical and to embed the digital media inside of a physical object. Yeah, and you know, I I really came to it from a place of um well, both criticality and also it's something that is, you know, not my my history and my culture, so like my relationship with that space was um, not from like a nationalistic, um, I guess, point of view, which I really don't care about, but like more of like really honoring um, this this past in some ways. And then just seeing so many of these like tech companies, um, a lot of them based in the Bay Area or just like this very like North American, Europe based, mostly um, archaeology, digital archaeology practices um, mm. and people who were like doing this kind of work. And then there was like so much ethical issues with the way they were practicing it. I mean, I, um, I actually like developed a term digital colonialism in relationship to this very specific thing that you are uh, raising and bringing up because when I was doing the material speculation project, you know, it got so much press and so much attention. So, so many people knew about it. And then I would get these links or, people sending me these messages like friends saying, Hey, have you seen this project? I just saw this. It really reminded me of your project. And, and after a while I started to get so mad. I was like, I know how? I hate when that happens. How myself. Do you not see, like how this is like actually very like colonialist in a way that they're doing it. Um, you know, a lot of these projects actually, they, these companies, these, these tech companies own the copyright of these things that they go and scan 3d hmm. scan or, um, Act, having access to, uh, you know, let's say if I emailed them and I'm like, can I have a 3D scan or 3D model of this thing for a project? Um, a lot of them don't give, give access, free and open access. Um, so it's, and, you know, there is like very specific monetary advance to it, uh, advantage to it that um, is, is part of how these institutions work. There is like a problem of white savior. There is, you know, I could give you a whole separate an hour, 30 minutes of yeah. like, talk on this because it's something that I've written a lot about and actually if anyone listening is interested on my website there's a whole section on digital colonialism where I specifically talk about different complexities and issues with such practices that I um, tend to separate myself and my project from 
How do you define digital colonialism for someone who wouldn't be familiar with that or hasn't seen your site before? I define digital colonialism as a framework for examining uh, this tendency for information technologies to be used in ways that uh, basically reproduce colonial power relations. Um, In my specific research, I was very focused on how this relates to issues of cultural heritage um, and in relationship to technologies of 3D scanners and 3D printers. But obviously, you can expand this idea of digital colonialism to many, many other daily experiences from Instagram's whitewashed um, filters, which we all know about if we use Instagram, to, you know, how Google Map works and the kind of information that it gives you or don't give you, mm. like how Palestine was never documented as, as a country as Palestine on Google Map to, um, um, you know, like Amazon and how you can't, at a t- well, some couple of years ago, you couldn't like write in Arabic or like, let's say, Farsi um, on Amazon, if you were going to send a gift to someone and you were going to do a private note, it would just tell you, you can write in those languages because, um, they're not, um, they're not recognizable. So these are examples like daily examples of digital colonialism, uh, that we can keep making a list of every day. I'm curious specifically with 3d printing and, and, uh, 3d scanning. Can you give us an example of how digital colonialism, uh, colonialism comes into play in your research? Um, I mean, the Palmyra example I gave was one example. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I guess I could like use that since I already talked about it and like kind of like break it down a little bit more. Sure. So when the Palmyra project was, was launched in London, uh, this is, I believe somewhere in 2016 or maybe 2000, early 2017. Um, we have this scene uh where like you know they're they're launching it uh and kind of there's this like white fabric on the sculpture so you don't see it yet they pull this down and then um we have um boris johnson giving a speech where he's calling isis members barbarians who are destroying these things and how you know they're saving this cultural heritage because they understand the value of it so an example like this right so i mean First of all, how let's look at this like this like cycle of violence. So how U.S. and U.K. Um, they all have been involved in obviously the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then how the creation of ISIS in first place is very much because of the 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 war on terror. Um, ISIS some of ISIS members were actually trained by U.S. military, so to come and stand there and talk about you know, them being now the heroes, the mm. ones saving this culture with and completely removing themselves from their their presence into this like cycle of violence that they've created. Uh, because we all know war and terror creates more more terrorism, period. Um and that's something that for example get lost in this political aspect of this project. Um, and people were, you know, in, in the audience, you see the video, people are just like plotting and like taking selfies with this thing. <laughs> um, and it's, to me, it was like very dark and I was like angry, like watching this, I was like so angry that like, uh, you know, it has become this thing. And again, going back to this whole idea of white savior, 
how um, talking about cultural heritage, for example, as something that is shared, which I have a lot of problem with because I feel like through the history for many, many years, people, um, I guess, Western white people have used uh, this idea of shared heritage as a way to colonize other cultures. And so now these, there's these new tools and technologies that we have 3D scanners and 3D printers. And a lot of this kind of come together in a way of these, again, tech companies, like working with different governments and institutions, um, and then going and 3D scanning these sites, historical sites in different parts um, of um, Global South or, again, like uh, different countries in Africa, etc., and then uh, bringing back this data, and then they have ownership and copyright of this data. So when you go to a place like Met or a British Museum, and you see like a huge gate from um, somewhere in Tibet or somewhere in the Middle East, and you're like, how did this get here? This just looks so huge. Like, how did it get here? Or like smaller objects. And a lot of time, the answer is that it was basically stolen. It was mm-hmm. taken without permission. So when we think about physical colonialism, we if, if you want to think about it critically, we obviously understand it um, in that sense, right? But then when it comes to digital colonialism and the use of these tools and, and digital ownership of data, uh, I think that's still a line that is blurry and not very kind of clear to people, like why, why it's problematic. Um, so that's something that I have been trying to do through writing and doing many, many lectures about these issues, trying to raise awareness about it, to question it, to ask people to think about it and not just see it as this like positive acts of reconstruction. It's very interesting the fact that these tech companies are doing 3D scans of objects and then they own them. I mean, that just brought up to mind exactly this idea of stealing artifacts from other cultures, uh, but digitally, which I hadn't even necessarily put together before you talked about it just now. Um, yeah. Are sure. are there movements to kind of make these uh, objects free or open, or would you rather that they don't scan them at all? Uh, I'm kind of curious about your stance on this practice. In some some situations, I I prefer they don't scan it at all. Like you know, I mean, this issue of digital gap, right, is always there because um, a lot of countries might not have access to these new technologies or like know how to use it in a way that like it actually works and they can gather the data in a way that is perfect and usable. Um, so that gives power to countries that do have access to these technologies to come and then scan it for them, but really to take it back to um, their, their, their country. Um, another example is, is this place called Cyark. Cyark with C-Y-A-R-K. Because there's another Cyarx. So yeah, sure. not, the, not the school. No, not the school. <laughs> and so they're based in the Bay Area. And they're one place that I've done a lot of research on. And um, they have done a lot of unethical practices of going and 3D scanning data and then even using the locals to help to, to teaching them and then getting them to scan things. And they, But they bring it all back to this data center. Oh, wow. Um, in, in Boston and like save it there. So... You know, there's it's and but through time, to be to be honest, like one thing that I've been noticing because there has been a lot of um, cri- critique to this kind of things. I mean, I myself was at a conference in 2000 at the end of 2015 where I gave a talk and it was a Google conference. So I talked about these issues and these people were there. Um, actually, I'm sorry, back up. It was a Cyarc conference. Mm. 
they had invited me to do this talk because at the time, as I said, my project was getting all this like press and attention. And I called them out, you know, on like their practices that, that I think it's unethical and they should like think about these things. I mean, the video is up there on YouTube if anyone wants to go see. Um, but through time, I think they have tried at least on surface to be better at kind of transparency and giving access or like being more careful about how they do these things. But again, once you start digging deeper and like reading more about their interviews and things they say and um, what they're doing with the data, where they're saving it. you. Oh, wow. Sorry. There's a giant thunderstorm just now broke out in New York. Uh, wow. <laughs> did you hear that too? That's the gods of digital. <laughs> Hopefully that's not Cyark. <laughs> no, I hope it's, it's the gods of digital telling telling them to like stop. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but yeah. So wow, now I hear it. Yeah, I so, probably traveled over to you now. Yeah. Um, I love this uh, gift that you've made. I, I I saw it in a Medium post that you did about the unveiling of that Palmyra arch. Uh, with Boris Johnson. Can you tell us just what it looks like? I, I just want to, since you brought it up a little bit of, of that unveiling. Yes. Okay. So this is also from, this is a, a gift from Brian Woodring. And then it, sh it shows that um, this white fabric falling off the sculpture, the, the Palmyra site that they're unveiling. And then under it is nothing. Um, so I usually show this during a lot of my lectures and talks because like that moment of this thing falling you know, they're launching it with having so much like pride and talking about this great act of uh, reconstruction. Um, but then there's nothing under it. And I think it's so simple, but at the same time, so powerful. People love it. Whenever I show this gift, everyone, you know, like starts laughing about it because they kind of see the power and also the irony of in the video. You know, there's actually a video of this that he's made, this artist, Ryan Woodring, that mm. Boris Johnson is like, and now we unveil the the new Palmyra and and then there's nothing under it um so yeah I think it's very brilliant uh let's talk about one of your more recent projects she who sees the unknown this is a multi-layered piece rooted in myth and folklore um so at its core what is this piece addressing how did this kind of come about um yeah so she who sees the unknown is a project that I started to work on uh since a residency I started here at New York called iBeam which is an art technology residency. And uh, it was a research-based residency for one year. And um, that was at the end of 2016 when I, uh, you know, as part of the residency, started working on She Who Sees the Unknown, which focuses on um, finding and researching monstrous uh, or gen, I guess, genie, female slash genderless queer figures from ancient folk um, stories of Middle Eastern origin. So it, Middle East and North Africa uh, and specifically focusing on um, the Islamic era. Um, and this is something that, you know, I had been like thinking about for a while, thinking about also um, the presence of these like mythical stories, you know, in my life growing up in Iran, uh, we are known as a culture of literature and poetry. So both the, these, these, these two things in our, in our life are like um, so important in our school and training. But one thing that I always noticed is that so many of these mythical stories had the superhero male as um, I guess the core of the story. 
the same thing you could say for you know the westernized example of it sure. with like you know superman and batman and the, the the male figure being being the one that is the center of this um immortality basically um and so i wanted to look for female or genderless figures that had this quality to them and i knew they were there because um you know what i just assumed is that through like a set of patriarchal systems and uh retelling of these stories they had even been like pushed out or forgotten or considered not important and this project was to go back and um through finding finding these these like figures and stories um think about this process that i call refiguring or refiguration so through reimagining this past being able to now reimagine um alternative possibilities for the the now the present and also um the future maybe we can take one of the characters from she who sees and sort of uh unpack the narrative behind that character or figure could you tell us about the laughing snake the laughing snake kind of stuck out to me for some reason yeah sure so um the laughing snake is one of the figures she's uh one thing i I should say is that these stories are also again not not common they're not stories that you know we just know because we grew up in like some country in in the middle east so um i came across this image this illustration of the laughing snake and this um older book it's called kitab al-bulhan uh which is this um arab Arabic manuscript and it shows this kind of hybrid snake female head uh, creature um, and then on and it's kind of happening in this like forest uh, in, in this image and then you see these like men on the side holding something and on top of it um, in Farsi and also like Arabic it says um, the image of the laughing snake and the mirror so I looked for this story in like many, many different resources to, to find out what this is about because it was not in the book itself. Mm. Um, and I came across different resources and basically it talks about the laughing snake being this creature or figure that is very powerful. And she's going through these like towns and cities and um, killing different animals and you know winning all these battles and wars and nobody can do anything to her no one can can destroy her until some someone comes and say the only way to destroy her is to hold a mirror in front of her and then when they do that which is what we see in the image the man holding this mirror and she sees her own reflection she starts laughing and she laughs for days and nights basically Mm. until until she dies and out of this piece, so this is this is the narrative that you've found, or this is the narrative that you've kind of refigured or created? No, this is a narrative I found. And so how does that translate then into the, the narrative that you create around the Laughing Snake in 2018, let's say? Yeah, so in the tradition of um, all the all the figures that I've worked on and then the stories that I've written about them, um, one thing that I'm really interested in is this concept of embracing this monstrosity you know the figure of 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 this like woman or again like queer figures embracing the monstrosity as this notion of you know otherness or the othered which you know people like um donna haraway uh, scholars and and theorists like donna haraway and rosie bray especially especially rosie bray they talk about this a lot um so with the laughing snake 
I'm kind of also being inspired by this this idea of embracing the otherness or the monstrosity and thinking about the laughter as a position of power. So her laughing and, and dying or like destroying herself and killing is not a position of weakness, but rather a way that she has chosen to take back um, her reflection of, of her body or is her way of taking back the control over her body, you know, which is now again being like reflected in this mirror held by this man. So I thought about this a lot. And I'm like, what does this mean? What is, you know, what is it that I can like, connect it to that I care about? And this was like around the time also that um, the Me Too campaign uh, was really big. And there were a lot of conversations finally coming out um, about um, sexual harassment uh, and experience of women with sexual harassment. Um, and one thing, though, that I, you know, obviously, like, many other women of color, et cetera, started to notice is that how much of these voices, although very important, uh, are still very like focused and dominantly focused on uh, white women and mm -hmm. Western women and the stories of other cultures and women from other, other backgrounds and colors, et cetera, is not really uh, being amplified in the same way. And something that I, I always wanted to work on was the experience of street harassment um, growing up in Iran. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided to think about the mirror, the reflection, female body, sexual desire, taking away. Wow, it's loud. <laughs> I know. It's kind of amazing to hear this lightning storm happening while you're talking about the laughing snake, too. <laughs> I, I know. Like these, this, this whole project. These figures just, are coming just, to life here. <laughs> over I the know. podcast such such a great background uh you know sound to, to everything i'm saying so yeah so basically turning around power structures uh through refiguring this um story of original story of the laughing snake and then um expanding that to my experiences of street harassment my own personal experience of um sexual desire and sexual experiences in iran which you know was very taboo um but also expanding it to the experience of um other women in iran um i for example use um the you know this this whole thing around safety pin as something that women in iran talked about like my generation of girls we all kind of had this thing where we were like just carry a safety pin with you and you know just have it on your bag or like you know on, on your on your clothes and then if if someone is bothering you on a bus or a cab you know just take it out and and kind of poke it with it mm -hmm. poke, poke them with it um so it's thinking about these like elements that became like a generation's way of dealing with harassment in a place, in a country that, um, you know, again, also like here, you are blamed for a lot of this harassment that, well, maybe you should be wearing better clothes. Maybe you shouldn't be wearing makeup or, you know, the Western, I guess, um, example of it is like slut shaming women into you got raped because you, you, you asked for it or something. So, um, I wanted to kind of specifically focus on these experiences and that's that's how I use the laughing snake. And so the laughing snake in its presentation becomes not only a sculpture, an, an installation, but also there's a virtual component to this as well. Is that correct? Yes. So with each of these um, figures or like monstrous figures that I've worked on, 
Altogether, there's five of them. But so there's a sculptural element to it. There's an installation that I built for each separately. Um, and then I write a new story about each of them. And then each story takes a different format. So, uh, you know, for like The Laughing Snake, the format is a web, web-based web format, web art, net art. Um, would, would it be possible for you to read sort of a section of The Laughing Snake for us? Yes. Okay, so when you go on this website, which again is, is free and accessible, um, so if anybody wants to actually dig deeper into this project, um, you can find it on my on my website under the Laughing Snake section. And you have to try it on a computer, not on your phone. So um, it's a, basically a hyper, hyperlink um, you know, text experience where it starts as a linear experience that I'm telling a story and then you click on um, you know, a word that is highlighted. And then as the story goes on and continues, it becomes multiple choices. So you have more options, more words that are highlighted that you can choose or click on. And based on what word you click on, it takes you to a different part of a story. And then the path you, I guess, take will end up to different, different places. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can spend a lot of time on this. And obviously I am just reading from a section or a couple of sections that I like the most myself, but um, yeah, feel free to go spend more time with it if you like. Thank you. Cool. And I will be standing on a stage and there will be a ceremony and I'll be raising my head and I will see a lineup of hundreds, thousands, millions of girls and they will each hold a safety pin up to the air and one girl will come to give me my own. And she will whisper into my ear, carry this with you everywhere you go. And this will become the weapon of my generation. And in Farsi, we call a safety pin Sanjokofli, which translates to locking, securing pin. And years later, when I learned a word in English, and I won't stop thinking about this uncanny coincidence of words and objects and our stories we were too ashamed to share. And years later from this future, none of this will even be a thing. And they will hold a mirror in front of me, in front of her. And I, she will lock a safety pin to my, her collar. And I, she will laugh while tears run down my, her face. And I, she will immediately recall my, her grandmother saying to befriend or conquer a gen, always have a safety pin fastened to your clothes. And at that very moment, so many worlds will collapse and the laughing snake and I will become one and we will be mirrored mirroring and we will appear to recede into an infinite distance that is the future. And I will walk out and I will be on the bus and he will sit next to me and he will slowly start rubbing his elbow to my left breast and he will look out the window like nothing is happening while doing it. And I will take my safety pin out and I will calmly push it into his leg. And I will push it in and I will push it in so much and so hard and so fiercely. And the more I push it in, the more blood will come out. And the more I push it in, the more his body falls apart. And the more I push it in, the more he will disappear. And the whole world will be watching and he will be gone and I will return to my body. So this... Thank you so much. That's that's amazing. It's so, so incredible to hear how you, your journey as an artist started in you know narrative and writing, creative writing, and now you're still practicing this within these 
new sort of digital media contexts. Um, because we talk to a lot of artists that work purely visually. So it's really refreshing to have some narrative and storytelling uh, embedded into these pieces. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good amount of text. I won't, I won't read the other part. Well, people can find uh, the whole piece on your site. So we'll link to that as well in the uh, yes. description for this episode. Before we Absolutely. go, we have a little tradition here on State of the Art of doing rapid fire questions at the end of every episode. So these are oh, no. these are questions that are have nothing to do with your art necessarily. They're just about you. Uh, so I okay. tell everyone that there, it's just the first thing that comes to your mind, the first thing that pops into your mind to these answers. So okay. uh, here we go. So what's the last book that you read? Um, I forgot his name. It's it's actually next. Wait. Okay. It's actually a book I'm reading right now. It's called Between Monsters, Goddesses, and Cyborgs. <laughs> that seems very appropriate for, for your work. Yes, I'm doing a <laughs> research for a text. So I, I got this book recently that I'm reading. Um, if you had to refigure yourself into one of the figures from She Who Sees the uh, Unknown, what figure would it be? I think I would probably go with Huma. And who is Huma? Uma is a gen that brings fever to human body. And I use her story as a way to um, talk about her power being used to bring justice into an equality into how we experience crisis. Hmm. And my, my way of thinking about it is that, you know, if a crisis happens and, you know, there's death, we, I, I want all of us to die together and the rich and the ones who have access to more resources and Elon Musk friends don't have the chance to escape. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure song? Guilty pleasure song. <laughs> um, like, you know, the song that comes, you know, you, you kind of listen to in secret, but you really love it. It's an Iranian song. What is it called? It. It's called Goli, G O L I. So if anyone searched that and say Iranian song, it probably comes up. All right, I will search it after this podcast. And the okay. last question for you is: What is the one food you could not live without? Oh God, I am so basic, but it's this Iranian <laughs> Iranian food called Orma Sabzi, which is the national dish of Iran. Hmm. And yeah, I think if someone was like, what is the one food you will never, ever give up in your life? That would be it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on State of the Art today. Uh, we're going to post links to a lot of the work that we've talked about in the description for this episode. Um, but good luck out there in the lightning storm in New York City. Awesome. Thank you so much. You too. And, uh, you know, I hope we all survive this. <laughs> Me too. Thanks, Marcin. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. Uh, you can always follow me at Gabe BC. Uh, if you have any ideas or suggestions or comments you want to relay to us, you can send me an email at Gabe at thestateoftheart.org. Uh, we're happy to read some questions on the air or uh, communicate directly with you through social media at State of the Art on Twitter and Instagram. State of the Art is an at art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, Wesson Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. And I hope that they're all doing well and uh, I've been communicating with them a little bit and they seem like they're safe and healthy. And I hope our audience is also uh, doing well and staying indoors and being safe. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>